Well, it's about that time, so let's go ahead and get started tonight. We'll start with a word of prayer. And Mark Hunter, since you're joining us, why don't you open us in prayer tonight? Father, Father, we do thank you for your grace, mercy, and love that you show us. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth, thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts and lives. Thank you for the opportunity to continue to learn and grow. And thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for Dr. Snowberger and opening the book of Revelation and end times. Amen. Thank you. Well, we are picking up here on page 33, and while you find your place in the notes there, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things that we need to uh, take care of. Next week, I was intending, you know, I, it's actually on the schedule that uh, I wasn't going to be here. I was planning to be at uh, ETS, it's a professional meeting for uh, seminary people um, in Texas, but uh, actually I had to change my plans. I'm headed out to Pennsylvania to sort of take care of uh, estate details with my dad. So, uh, but in any case, I'm not going to be here. Ryan Meyer is going to be coming. Uh, Ryan's a, a graduate of the seminary, just finished up his, his doctoral work, so you can call him Dr. Meyer and stroke his ego if you want. Um, but uh, he, his, uh, his work that he did on his, in his dissertation was on the Olivet Discourse, so Matthew 24 and 25. And I know there were, we had some discussions of that, and there were some, some questions uh, that were raised from the Olivet Discourse, and so he's going to come and answer all your questions. So, 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 so. Give them some tough ones, but uh, that that'll be that'll be the plan. Sort of supplement what we're doing. <laughs> and then the following week is day before Thanksgiving, and so there's no services that night. So uh, I won't be back here for another three weeks. So so next next two weeks I will not be here. And then we've got just three weeks left after that uh, for us to cover uh, the judgments uh, and effectively the eternal state, talk about eternal conscious torment for the damned and then a little bit about heaven uh, for believers. And that'll pretty much wrap up uh, what we our discussions here of eschatology. But tonight we've got a pretty, pretty steep task here. I've got a lot to cover We'll see if we get it done or not, but uh, we want to talk about the doctrine of the millennium or the kingdom, the uh, Christ's kingdom, the messianic kingdom, this continuation here of the mediatorial kingdom that began in the Old Testament with very seed form with Moses and then uh, with its first legitimate Davidic king, uh, David, um, and then persisting until things fall apart because uh, the uh, people of Israel fall under, fall, fell under the, uh, under the curses of the covenants because of disobedience. And so uh, they were scattered, and they remain largely scattered. There, there have been you know, partial returns over the years, the main, main one under, Bab, uh, under Persia. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course, in history, we've had various events where where pieces of, of the uh, Israelite people came together, but uh, by and large, the people are still scattered. There is no kingdom. There is no throne. There is no king. Uh, there, is no, there is no temple structure and, and all of that, all that goes into that. So uh, the kingdom, as we're going to suggest here, is in abeyance. It's, it's, it's been postponed, uh, but there is going to be coming a day uh, when it is revived uh, 4,000 years under the rule, messianic rule of Jesus Christ. But before we get to that positive description of the kingdom, we want to go back and revisit those two views of the kingdom uh, that we uh, looked at at the very first day we had class, postmillennialism and amillennialism. So uh, that's the review for tonight, but we're going to try and fill in some gaps. We're going to start here by looking at this, uh, this idea of amillennialism, which is the idea that there is no kingdom per se. Uh, what we have in, as the kingdom is effectively a spiritual uh, realization of the kingdom promises, 
either within individual believers or in the, the aggregate of the Christian church. And the reason uh, that these, uh, the, the amillennialists believe as they do is because of some key supporting texts. Uh, Matthew 13 talks about the mysteries of the kingdom, which they understand uh, amillennialists to mean that uh, the kingdom is going to take a sort of a mysterious new twist in interpretation and that, uh, that the kingdom is going to take a form other than uh, the material kingdom that was anticipated in the Old Testament. Luke 17 talks about the, king, the kingdom of God being within you. Acts 28, we find that the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the book of Acts up to the very last verse of the, of the book, uh, which is 35 years later, and it's still being called the gospel of the kingdom. And so the argument here is that the gospel that they're preaching, uh, that the, the apostles are preaching, are, is effectively, you know, the, it, you know here, here's, here's how you can be right with God and how you can coalesce together with other believers in a kingdom of God, on a spiritual kingdom on earth. Colossians 1 talks about being, us being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And these passages are formidable. We'll look at each one. Uh, but uh, on the face of things, prima facie uh, arguments here for the fact that uh, there is no millennium per se, but rather a spiritual idea. There's other texts also that, that seem to merge Israel with the church talking about a seed of Abraham according to faith, uh, which includes Jews and Gentiles. 2 Peter 2 talks about the church being a kingdom, uh, actually a royal priesthood, uh, borrowing language uh, from the Old Testament that uh, identifies Israel as a kingdom of priests. So all of these uh, taken together could suggest that, uh, that the church is the kingdom and, and uh, it's going to continue to uh, to, uh, to flourish, to develop uh, here on earth until uh, God comes and ends things and institutes at the eternal state. So why, is, why don't we hold to this view? Well, firstly, this view either comprehensively spiritualizes detaching the kingdom from its Old Testament moorings uh, that, uh, that promise a kingdom with not only spiritual but also geographical, Political, meteorological, ecclesiastical, ethical aspects. We're going to look at these. Uh, the, the kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament has all kinds of details that aren't being realized in the life of the church. Okay? It's not as though the church is eliminating disease, but that's the way it's going to be in the kingdom. There's not going to be any disease. There's not going to be any poverty. Uh, there's, not, there's, uh, there, there's, there's going to be abundance in terms of, uh, of food avail availability uh, and, and all kinds of things that are going to happen with, with geography. There's going to be uh, streams and barren places, streams in the desert. I know that's a, it's a devotional guide, but uh, as I understand it, it's not just metaphorical streams in the desert of the soul, but rather there's going to be streams in traditionally desert places, which is just going to open up uh, opportunities for agriculture and development and wealth uh, within the life of, of, the, uh, of the world. And so the, the details of the kingdom are just uh, so great. And to simply say, let's all just, let's spiritualize all of them and uh, reduce the kingdom then to its spiritual aspect here. Uh, I think that uh, really minimizes the Old Testament promises and, uh, and spiritualizes where I don't think that's possible. It also ignores a great number of New Testament passages that place the kingdom in the future. Luke 19, remember that, uh, that parable uh, where uh, uh, the, 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 they were marching towards Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday and, and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So, Jesus told them a temple, uh, a parable. A man went into a far country to receive the kingdom and then to return. Okay? And, and what, he's, what he's illustrating there is, okay, the kingdom of God is not going to appear immediately. It, it's, it's not about to show up. Okay? Instead, I'm going to go away. 
to a far country where I will eventually receive my kingdom in return, but it's going to be a, a weight, which is why he distributes uh, you know, a, a sum of money, a mina, to each one of his servants and says, you know, do business, occupy until I come. It's going to, it's going to be a while. Get, get ready for the long haul because the kingdom is not going to start immediately. Luke 21 and, and throughout, the, it hasn't, hasn't arrived yet. It's, a, it's about to blossom here. So just get ready. Uh, Acts 1, I don't, I don't even include that one here, but Acts 1, uh, the last question that the disciples ask Jesus, what is it? Is it now that you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel? And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or seasons. You've got a task to do, and I'm going to go away. And with that, a cloud receives him out of their sight. Now, he doesn't actually give a, a firm no here, but by implication, that's, that's the answer. No, not, not now. Later, that's going to happen. We find multiple occasions in the, uh, in the uh, New Testament where entry into the kingdom occurs after a lifetime of sanctification. Okay? You'll enter into the kingdom through much tribulation. Okay? Uh, the, someone who is rich in faith uh, will inherit the kingdom. 2 Timothy 4, after a lifetime of persecution, Paul hopes to be brought into Christ's kingdom. I don't think I have it here, but Second uh, uh, Peter 1. Uh, we find that after Paul, or excuse me, after Peter lists this this list of virtues, add your faith, virtue, faith, uh, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and temperance, and so on and so forth. And if you do these things, if you successfully uh, cultivate sanctification and become more and more like Christ, an entry into the kingdom will be paved for you. Okay. Well, I mean, if the church is the kingdom. I'm already there. I don't have to have my way paved in order to get there. But we find that the, the, the promise of the kingdom is, is, is awarded after a lifetime of sanctification, of persecution, and so on and so forth. Um, we find that in Revelation 11, at the seventh trumpet, is really where the rumblings of Christ's kingdom begin to, to, to start to, 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 to spin here. Uh, and it's, you know, it's that line made famous in, in Handel's Messiah. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Christ, our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so there's this, there's this anticipation that as, as we come to the, the very close of the tribulation, that there's this, this, and I think Handel captures it so well in the Handel's Messiah there, and, you know, and especially the, uh, the, the instrumentation at that, at that point. You know, the, the, king, the, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And it's just a, uh, just a, a, a scintillating moment, really, uh, where we anticipate uh, that the kingdom's going to begin. Okay? So all of that... Uh, is, is, I think, evidence here that the kingdom is something that is ahead of us. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's not something that we're in right now. Uh, now, there's perhaps a sense in which we could talk about us doing kingdom work uh, in that we are cultivating a constituency that will populate the kingdom in the future. Uh, but that's, it seems, where it ends. But, uh, but uh, and, and so... Thirdly here, another problem, this view recognizes a God who changes the meaning of words. Breaks his promises, right? He made a promise of a specific and in just enormous detail about what the kingdom is going to be like in the, in the Old Testament prophets. And then to come to the New Testament and say, eh, not really, it's, it's just the church, okay? All those details... Yeah, those should all be typologized, spiritualized, something, because those things aren't going to happen on earth. Okay? Uh, and uh, that's, I think that really says something to the character of God, and uh, it's not a kind of God that I want to be, uh, be uh, serving. I think the view also ignores the fact that national Israel remains a part of Christ, God's plans for the future. Romans 9 to 11. Uh, there's... A, there's Three chapters given over to this question. 
what about Israel? You know? And, and, and Paul said, what about, what about my kinsmen according to the flesh? And the way he says it, so it's, there's no question what he means here is the Israelites, the, the Jewish, the ethnically Jewish people. What's going to happen with them? I mean, I'm, I'm all excited to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and it's, it's great, great news for them. But what about my people Israel? Are, are they just out? And no, God gives three chapters of delightful material. Uh, where he talks about his plan uh, in order to, to create vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy and, uh, and bring the Gentiles in so that the Israelites will become jealous and so, that the, so at the end of the day all of them will, uh, will succumb to this jealousy and will turn and, and, and embrace the Messiah uh, that, was, that, was, that was firstly there and, and weep over the fact that, that they, that they, they you know, lost so much time here. Uh, and and uh, and the, and then all Israel will be saved, and and you know Paul ends with this just great burst of praise, right? Oh, the depth of the knowledge and wisdom of God. I've, that this is this is this is a grand plan. I'm I, my faith in God is restored, and I'm confident that my people Israel will get get their day, and he's excited. Okay, and so. Uh, that, that's what the kingdom is going to feature, and an, a, a return to uh, the people of Israel, and they will feature prominently in this kingdom. So what do we do with some of these key texts? I said there's four, I, I mentioned four key texts that uh, sort of indicate perhaps that, uh, that the kingdom is part of the church. Well, let's start with this mystery. Uh, Matthew 13 talks about the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, but realize that as they unfold, you recognize that the mysteries of the kingdom are not a mystery form of the kingdom, um, a mysterious spiritual form of the kingdom, but rather it's details about the kingdom that had previously not been announced, but it's not undoing or, or canceling the promises, the prophecies that have been established up till this point. Instead, the 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 the, the the mystery is that there is going to be a period of time where the Gentiles are going to have their opportunity to be part of a body, this church. And, and again, Paul calls this the mystery in Ephesians 3, uh, this, this mysterious new organism that really was unknown prior to, well, really Matthew 13, Matthew 16, uh, where the church... Uh, where the first inklings of the church begin to unfold, and we realize that there's going to be this body where Jews and Gentiles can be together as equals. There's no priority given to the, the Israelites, uh, the Jews in the uh, Christian church. Uh, in fact, it's predominantly Gentile, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the New Testament church is. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is the good news, and it's good news of the kingdom, right? So coming, so coming back to that, that question, you know, the, the good news of the kingdom that, is, that is, is, is preached all the way to the very last verse of the book of Acts is, yeah, the, the, there, there are things about the kingdom you didn't know, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be included that you didn't realize, that you didn't know about, and some details. And, and, and so, so Paul is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it's, and it's good news. About, remember, that's what gospel means. The gospel is good news. Uh, the gospel, you know, I think sometimes we, 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 we shortchange and give it a little bit too narrow of a view of what the gospel is, right? You know, the gospel is justification. You know, Christ bore our sins and gave us his righteousness, and that's the gospel. Well, it's part of the gospel, a very important part of the gospel. But remember, uh, you know, where, where, do we, where do we get our best definition of the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He's buried, rose again, third day according to the scripture. But remember what 1 Corinthians 15 is? What's that? What, what's the topic of 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection. The resurrection, right? That's the major topic. But it doesn't even stop there, right? So he says, you know, he, he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And then, you know, it goes in, he was seen by a whole pile of people, 500 people. 
uh, over the course of time. And, and then he wraps up, he go, goes into the a defense of the, of, the, of the resurrection and includes all of us in the resurrection. It's, it's, going to, it's actually going to envelop all of us. We're all going to be resurrected just like Jesus was. And there's going to be a, 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 a transformation of each of us, each in his order. You know, because we have been uh, raised with Christ, and then there's going to be a kingdom, and then, and then verse 24 is sort of a, a, a climax here, where where uh, where these where the the kingdom of of this of Jesus kingdom is going to be sub, submitted to God the Father, and God will be all in all. Okay, and I think that's all the gospel. Okay, it's all the gospel, and and the gospel is not just what God did for you. It's how God is going to manifest himself and reveal himself and bring everything all together in, in, in grand form. And God will be all in all. That's the gospel. And so when we see this, this reference here to the gospel of the kingdom, we shouldn't think of the gospel as the kingdom as simply get saved and join a church. Okay? It, it's, it's all of this. And it includes and in fact features prominently material about the kingdom of God and when, when God is finally recognized uh, by his creation for who he really is. It's part of, it's part of the gospel. Okay. Luke 17, this passage here that says that the kingdom of God is within you. You have to recognize the context here. Who is the you here? Well, it's Pharisees. Pharisees who were not being very nice at the time, uh, not exhibiting any signs of faith. And what is Jesus' words? You know, they're, they're talking down the kingdom and how, you know, he's, he's not who he is. And, and he says, no, the kingdom's among you. Probably we should perhaps understand that. The kingdom is in your midst. I'm the king. I'm right here. Embrace me. And the kingdom, you know, ostensibly could have begun immediately. They didn't. Okay, so the, so the the statement here is not that the kingdom is inside their hearts because their hearts were wicked and foul. Okay, uh, what what he's saying here is that the kingdom is being offered to you, and the king is in your midst. If you will only embrace him for who he is, uh, then then uh, then these times of refreshing uh, could come immediately. Okay, but since they rejected him, the king goes away, and the kingdom is for that reason postponed. Uh, one more key text here was uh, Galatians 1.13, uh, where in which uh, we have this statement uh, that, uh, sorry, I didn't bring my Bible up, a statement here that we were transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. And of course, the amillennialist says, aha, there it is. A proof that when we were saved, we were admitted into the kingdom. And so the church then, uh, must be the sum total of what this kingdom is. But if I could take you to another verse here, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, remember, Ephesians and Colossians are parallel books, right? They're written at the same time, prison epistles of Paul. They follow pretty much the same structure, uh, particularly in the beginning. You can pretty much follow along. They pretty, he pretty much says much the same thing as you work through the first several chapters of Colossians and Ephesians. And so you can do sort of a, a harmonization. You know, we talk about a harmony of the Gospels where we try and, you know, put it all together. Uh, you can sort of do that with the prison epistles uh, because they have so much in common with one another. And, and the, the parallel within the structure is Ephesians 2.6 which says that God raised us up with Christ and seated with us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Okay, I think that's very informative as to how we should understand our transfer into the kingdom of his dear son. No one looks at Ephesians 2 and says, oh, he has seated us in the heavens. We're in heaven. I hadn't really thought about that. We're in heaven. No, just about every commentary you look at will say this is, this is the proleptic use of the aorist. You know, this is the idea that it's so certain that he actually, that he actually puts it in the past tense, right? You know, like, you know like, it's kind of like the eager, eager young fellow who's got a 
whose boss tells him, hey, I want you to, I want you to, you know, I want to move, move that, uh, that uh, you know, that pallet of whatever and move it. And, and what does the eager young fellow say? It's done, boss. It's done. Well, no, it isn't. It's still sitting there. But, but what does he mean here? It's good. It's as good as done. I'm, I'm going to get right on it. You can count on it being done in another few minutes. Okay, so that's what we, that's what, what is the idea here. So he has seated us in the heavenly realms. And we say, no, I'm not there yet, but the certainty is so great that it is, that it is cast is already done. And I think the same idea should be applied then to our transfer into the kingdom of his dear son. doesn't mean we're there, okay, but rather the certainty of our arrival in uh, the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is such uh, that God is able to put, place it in the past tense. Uh, because of the confidence that we have that that's going to be the case. Okay? So that, uh, uh, that's, that's amillennialism. Any questions that you have on that or other texts? Not denying, mm-hmm. But, 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 but presently, we're not there, right? I don't, I don't mistake. I don't say, oh, I'm, not, I'm in heaven. Right. No, it's, it's, a, spiritual, it's a spiritual truth, just like all people. Well, it is a, yeah, it is a spiritual truth, yeah. Physically circumcised, but all, right. all believers are spiritually circumcised. Sure. Yeah, there's no doubt that there are spiritual realities in view there. Uh, but like you said, Philippians... Our citizenship being in heaven doesn't mean we're there. Right. Uh, in, in, in Ephesians, the fact that he's seated us in the heavenlies doesn't mean we're there. Right. The fact that we have been transferred into the kingdom doesn't mean we're there, right? right. And, so, and so, so I think we, we have, in fact, you brought me a, a new verse there to throw in there, right? So, it, it's, so I, I don't think we should think of this as something that is an actuality, a material actuality now, but something that is rendered certain because of our spiritual transformation. Um, So because we have been spiritually transformed, our place in heaven is is assured. Our place in the kingdom is certain. And so I don't know that we should think in terms of some sort of a spiritual form of the kingdom uh, but rather a, 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 a certainty uh, that that is going to be our eventual reality. Yeah. And so. I would think, too, if they just added that, mm-hmm. baptism, our water baptism, as important as that is, and it's right. vitally important, is still secondary to our spiritual baptism. Right. The moment we believe, we, we're spiritually baptized, just as this covered me. You know, sure. Right. Yeah, we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized in the body of Christ, the the church. Um, but I don't I don't know that that. I guess I guess I'm not I'm not seeing any reason there to say okay, 
So there's a spiritual form of the kingdom that is not really mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It's just, it's just a spiritual form. I don't know that we have to go there. I think it actually sort of muddies things a little bit and causes us to, um, to wonder, okay, so could the whole thing be spiritualized? And I, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's better to think in terms of the kingdom is a spiritual and material reality, and we will be, we will be, we will enjoy it someday. Right. Okay, other questions? Yes, Dave. Under this view, they would teach that Satan's throne is bound. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's, there's, yeah, so the question is whether, sorry about you people in Zoom land, I forgot about you. Uh, the question is, is then Satan currently bound? I don't know that there's a uniform answer to that among amillennialists. I mean, sometimes there's this there's this idea of binding Satan uh, that is that is some, sometimes a present reality. We can pray for the binding of Satan, um, or that or that can be more of a, a rather than having him, you know, incarcerated in a place, he's he's hobbled, perhaps is is the idea because Christ's kingdom is being established and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, so. Right. Yeah. During the kingdom. Yeah. During. Yeah. During. During. Yeah. During, yeah Rome, uh, that's Revelation twenty. They're assimilating kingdom into the present day. Right. Yes. Okay. Another view then was postmillennialism, which was a dominant view, really from the seventeenth all the way up to the 19th century. For about 300 years, this was the dominant view uh, within, within the Christian church, Protestantism. And the idea here was that the kingdom is a gradual establishment of divine order in the world's improving social and political structures, which will culminate in the second coming of Christ. Okay, So uh, the idea then would be that the church uh, is ushering in the kingdom, perhaps a phrase that you've, uh, you're familiar with. And so, and it, it's anticipating all of the promises in the Old Testament and trying to bring them about, okay? So if I, if I, if I, can, if I can sort of do an opening for A, if the problem with amillennialism is that they spiritualize all the terms of, of, the, uh, of the Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom, the, the error of postmillennialism is they naturalize them all, okay? Uh, and so what was, what was the feature of classic liberalism, during, especially during the end of the 19th, early 20th century? Well, they were doing all kinds of social things. They were building hospitals. They were going overseas, not so much to share the gospel, but to dig wells help people to learn how to uh, plant crops that, are, that, that uh, will give them more food. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's orphanages being built. Why? Because those are the terms of the Old Testament. There's not going to be anybody without fathers. Okay, so let's build orphanages. There's not going to be anyone with the disease. So let's build hospitals. There's nobody that's going to go hungry. So let's, let's produce more food. And so rather than spiritualizing those prophecies and saying, oh, those are just spiritual ideas, they naturalize them. We can do this with technology and industry, and the church is going to sort of take the helm and, and, and lead the world into this grand new day, this grand new era. And uh, after, after a period of success, God will finally come back, Jesus will finally come back, and his arrival will be the capstone of this kingdom that is in development here. Okay. Um, what are some key texts? Well, there are several texts that suggest uh, that uh, they cite Psalm 2, uh, the installation of the king in Psalm, and it's connected with the resurrection. And so if the resurrection is where the kingdom starts, 
then we should, we should expect the kingdom to grow and expand uh, from that point forward. In fact, Jesus says, as he goes up into heaven, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. What, what, what better way could he say? I'm the king. You know, all power has been given to me in heaven and earth. I'm the king. And so the kingdom is in force and it's, and it's moving forward. Uh, Matthew 13, there's a parable here of a kingdom uh, where, that it grows from something small, a grain of mustard, and, and ultimately takes over the whole world. Okay? And Matthew 16, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the, the, the church is going to march forward and, and crush the powers of darkness and, and the kingdom is going to be established. Okay, so that's, that's the idea of post-millennialism. So how do we answer this? Well, to their credit, post-millennialists do offer a more robust picture of the kingdom than their amillennialist brothers. They, they do take seriously the Old Testament prophecies of a kingdom that's going to have manifold dimensions. However, they still ignore much of what the Old Testament promises. For instance, the, the post-millennialists can't explain the physical aspects of the promised kingdom. You know, the, the, the idea that there's going to be a, a stream that connects the Mediterranean Sea with Jerusalem with the Dead Sea. They don't, they're, they're not making that happen. That's, that's not something that's going to happen uh, very easily. There's meteorological changes, changes in the astronomical bodies. And while, while he makes much of the ethical, political, and sociological advance, the anticipated upward trajectory of culture doesn't seem to match this reality. So things aren't just getting better. Uh, I mean, there, 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 are, there are moments uh, in the history of, of Christianity where things do seem to be uh, improving in culture, uh, but more often than not, things wax worse and worse, right? Okay, that's, that's the expectation we should have. In fact, this is why post-millennialism dies. Beginning of the 20th century, uh, post-millennialism pretty much disappears off the map. In fact, if you read uh, Lewis Barry Chafer's uh, uh, book on the kingdom, he says that uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in 1860, it was the received, uh, received understanding of the kingdom. Just about nobody disagreed with post-millennialism. By the time we get to 1930s, Schaefer says there's no living representative of post-millennialism left. Okay, so in, in 80 years, it goes from the universal position of the church to an empty set. Okay, and the reason was because there, because you know the the 19-teens and 20s were just a horrible time. Uh, not only do you have the rise of communism and the Russian Revolution, in which millions of people died, but then you've got World War One. Uh, where they've got, uh, I, I think we mentioned this before, they, 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 there's, there's, there's 19th century war tactics, but 20th, 20th century war machines, right? You know, prior to the, you know, in the 19th century, you'd get two armies on two sides of the field, and they'd march in, and then bing, bang, 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 and one of the armies runs off, and the other one prevails. But, you know, their guns weren't all that good. Not all that many people died in these these exchanges, and, uh, and, and it was an effective way. But now what happens is the army comes into the field and there's three guys with machine guns at the end and kill them all. And so they're all dead. And, and then couple that with uh, some, of the, some of the germ warfare and the, uh, and the gas warfare, the trenches. Uh, that, uh, it, was just, it was just a horrible war. I mean, it, and, and it was a war with no reason. You know, you read the history books. Nobody knows for sure why World War I even happened. There's a, there's a thousand different ideas why, but nobody's in agreement. It just seemed like everybody wanted to fight, okay? And it was just, it's just an awful, th awful time. And, and it seems that largely because of World War I, the Russian Revolution, postmillennialism dies overnight, um, because there is no upward trajectory that's going to end with, the, with this grand climax of Jesus coming back to crown all of the advances of humanity because humanity doesn't seem to be advancing very well, at least not ethically. The postmillennialist also does little to account for New Testament passages that depict the kingdom as future or 
for the role of Israel in the kingdom. These passages that they mention here are, are important, though. I think we need to address them. Psalm 2, 7 uh, is, uh, you know, this day I have begotten you, uh, this uh, coronation psalm that was written, uh, probably used for the first time with Solomon. Okay, so it would have been used there uh, throughout the Old Testament period as a coronation psalm, an, an, an announcement, a recognition of kingship. So it's not so much an establishment of sonship, uh, but a declaration of divine appointment. It's important to note that this verse is applied to Christ not only at his resurrection, but also at his baptism. Also, the expectation of Psalm 2 that the earth's kingdoms will be crushed seem far better suited to the second coming than descriptions of the resurrection. And then finally, uh, Luke 19, uh, with this statement that the kingdom's not going to start now, it's going to happen later, seems to definitively place the commencement of the kingdom after Christ's return. Okay? The fact that the gates of hell do not prevail Against the church, again, it's been notoriously misinterpreted. I think we mentioned this earlier as well. The verse does not say that the church will advance so powerfully that it will beat down the doors of hell. Why would the church even want to beat down the doors of hell? I, I don't understand that, actually. Instead, the promise is that the gates of hell will not close on the church. So the church will not go out of existence. So it's a it's a, it's a much more reserved understanding here. Okay? There's, there is a, a clear promise that the church is going to survive all of the persecutions that it faces during its long history. It will prevail. It will not be snuffed out of existence by the wiles of the devil. But the point here is not that the church is going to advance so dramatically that it's going to break down the doors of hell. Okay? Uh, again, this is a, uh, why, again it, it makes very little sense uh, that the church would want to break down the gates of hell to get in. It, it seems a little strange. Uh, so uh, so I, I, I think that's a, a misinterpretation here. Of course, Christ does receive something at his resurrection. All power is given to him in heaven and earth. And it might reasonably be understood to imply that he receives the seat of authority that is the Messianic kingdom. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. The New Testament acknowledges that there is another ruler of this world ongoing now who continues to exercise power even after Christ has departed. It's more likely that Christ is saying something about the fact that he is reversing the humiliation uh, that was his during the first advent. Remember, we sometimes call it the kenosis, the humiliation of Christ, whereby he is not acknowledged for who he is, the God of the universe, but is actually treated rather abysmally and ultimately killed. Okay? But after the resurrection and at the ascension, Jesus says, you know, it's all done. All, everything's restored. Okay? All power has been granted to me. I am now seated at the side of my Father over the throne of the universe. Okay? But he's not saying, he's not saying, I am installed at my throne of the Davidic kingdom. Now remember, there's two kingdoms. In fact, we could, we could look there in, in uh, Revelation 3.21, right? Uh, there's this, this promise of, of the two thrones, Right? says here in verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will allow to sit with me on my throne, the messianic throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Okay, Remember, the, the, there's this kingdom over all. His kingdom extends over all things. He is the king of the universe. God is always the king of the universe. But this idea of Christ sitting on his messianic throne and ruling the Jewish people is something uh, that we still have to anticipate in the future. Okay? Questions here on post-millennialism? Well, that leaves us then with premillennialism, the idea that the kingdom is a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ 
It begins with his second coming in glory at the close of the tribulation. Our key texts, we've already looked at uh, Luke chapter 19. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom was going to appear immediately, but they were wrong. And so he said to them, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive his kingdom and then later to return. And in the interim, during the, during the gap while he's gone, he gives his disciples instructions, his servants in the, in the parable. Uh, but the instructions then, just as what happens in Acts 1, is the kingdom going to be now? No, I'm going to give you a responsibility. Go teach the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son. And, and he gives again that he reiterates uh, this great commission and says, this is, this is your task while you wait for the kingdom. Okay, and so uh, that's a, I think that's a key text. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, six times there's reference here to the thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these has the death, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, six times this thousand years is mentioned. Uh, which seems to give significance to it, uh, that there's going to be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth from his earthly Zion, from a throne there uh, in a distinctively Jewish kingdom that will extend its tentacles uh, throughout the entire world. Okay. Luke 21, we have this promise that the kingdom is going to be preceded by a period of great tribulation which will be suffered in a single generation and, and then Christ will arrive to set up his kingdom. There's other passages as well, but uh, uh, these are sufficient for now. Old Testament describes what this kingdom is going to be like. And again, I, I've mentioned all of, the, uh, all of the spheres in which the kingdom manifests itself. And again, I think the premillennial understanding is the only one that really does justice to these terms that are given in the Old Testament. Okay? Rather than spiritualizing these details like the amillennialist or naturalizing these details like the postmillennialist, the premillennialist says we're actually going to take these literal, literally. These, 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 these terms of the kingdom are going to be experienced in a material reality. Let's look at these and see if we can't uh, see them. It has a firstly a physical aspect. Disease will be eliminated. Isaiah 33 says, During this time no one living in Zion will say, I am ill. No one will be sick. Nobody will wear masks. Nobody will get vaccines. won't be necessary. No one will say, I am ill. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like the deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. You know, that, that last, uh, last verse, uh, um, O four a thousand tongues to sing, is just wrapped up in, the, in those verses. Um, ye eyes behold, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. And it uh, goes through all of the details. Psalm 91, at that time, no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. He will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. You won't even stub your toe in the millennium because the angels will prevent those things from happening. I'm not sure exactly what that will look like, but uh, I kind of feel like the angels might get in the way, but, but, the, but, the, but the fact is, uh, there's going to be a, 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 a there's, those things are going to be prevented. Isaiah 65 indicates that the average life extendancy will dramatically increase. A 100-year-old will be considered a youth. And old men will live out their days. Some suggest that the righteous won't die at all. Uh, only, only those who are disobedient will die uh, during the millennium. And uh, won't get into that, de that, uh, that level of detail here, settle that dispute. But at any rate, people are going to live a really long time. You know, we're going to get Methuselah ages back again. 
Animals will lose their aggressiveness. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with a goat. The calf and the lion and a yearling will lie down together. A little child will lead them all. My little two-year-old grandson, yeah, just lead a lion around. He'll, he'll, he'll enjoy that. Right? The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Apparently something of a reversal of the curse. Uh, the, the, the animals won't be eating each other. They'll, they'll eat plants again. Infants will ch play near the hole of a cobra, and a young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, but they won't harm him or destroy in all my holy mountain. You know, they won't bite him. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust will be the serpent's food, and they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Okay, so this is, this, this, is, this is the way the kingdom's going to unfold. And I, I, a few years ago, I went through uh, the library at DBTS and went through all the, all the uh, commentaries on Isaiah to find out what people thought that meant if they didn't mean that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. What does it mean? And I had a list of about 30 different interpretations as to what it means to spiritualize this idea of of wolves and sheep lying down together. Some it's it's harmony within the church. Sometimes it's you know it's it's peacefulness, world peace. You know it's 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 all kinds of all kinds of interpretations of this. But the really simplistic interpretation is that wolves will lie down with sheep. It's pretty simple. That's because there were so many sheep. The wolves fed themselves, right? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> Meteorological changes will occur, ensuring agricultural success. Over Zion, there will be a canopy, a shelter from the heat of the day and a hiding place from storm and rain. And the reaper will overtake the plowman, the treader of grapes, him that plants. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all of its hills. Uh, and again, this is probably not literal that it's actually flowing, but the idea is it's going to be so abundant that it's going to seem that way. Okay? And, and uh, you know, we, we find this, this, this promise that the early rains and the latter rains will come at the right time. You know, if, uh, I mean, we, we in America don't really think in terms of early lanes, rains and latter rains, but much of the world does. And there's a, there's there's a great dependency. I remember when we were I was in Africa, and they were they were waiting for the rains, and they didn't come that one year. And and and, and this is disaster. It's famine, because they don't, fortunately, don't make preparations they need to uh, for for circumstances like that. So if the early rains or the latter rains don't come, it's a disaster. It's famine. But you know. Now it's going to be all restored. The early rains will come when they're supposed to. Latter rains will come when they're supposed to. And there will be great abundance, so, so much abundance, you know, that, that the, you know, the plowman, you know, the, the plowman and the reaper are going to crisscross paths because they're just, they're constantly doing their work. You know, things are going to grow so quickly that the reaper is going to pretty, pretty much overtake the, the plowman. You know, it's, you know, he's planting and it's growing so fast uh, that, the, uh, that the reaper... Is, is just pretty much right up on his heels. And that, that's going to be the way it is uh, during the kingdom. Okay? We don't see that happening. We're all abuzz last two weeks. Why? Because you know, we're trying to stop global warming or else the world will end, right? Well, that, that's not going to be a concern uh, during the kingdom. Okay? We also find here barren climates will have success. The desert will become a fertile field. And the fertile field, by comparison, will become a veritable forest of food. The desert and the wilderness will blossom and burst into bloom. The splendor of Carmel and Lebanon will be restored. The sandy places will become pools with springs that support meadows and even swamp plants like papyrus. I mean, this is just, this is just going to be a grand time. So it's got, it's got this, this physical aspect that just can't be spiritualized or even naturalized. It's going to have a social aspect. War will be eliminated. Behold, your king is coming. The bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There will be no war anywhere. 
So they'll just take their swords and plowshare and, and, and hammer them into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There's no, they're going to repurpose all the military equipment, if, if I can put it that way, uh, for, for domestic use because there won't be any need for military equipment any longer. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. You see this, this, this complete safety and security is here. You know, you're just lounging in front of your house. You don't have to worry about, uh, about any, anybody making trouble. Poverty will be eliminated through industry, which is an interesting twist, right? It's not just it's eliminated, but it's eliminated through industry. Everybody will have a job, okay, is the idea. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. Isn't that great? (laughs) We're not going to do all the building and make all the money and then somebody else get it. (laughs) Okay, socialism's out, right? They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen one will wear out the work of their hands. There will be plenty to do and plenty, to, uh, plenty of wealth to be distributed. It also has an ethical aspect. Universal standard of righteousness, which will be enforced perfectly. The king will reign righteously. Princes will rule justly. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. Boy, that... That's going to get rid of 90% of the news, right? A bruised reed will not, he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. So those who are the, the weak and the vulnerable will, will not go unprotected in that day. It has a political aspect. The king will rule from a throne from Jerusalem. Government will be upon his shoulders, and he will judge between the nations, render decisions for many peoples, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He will reign righteously, princes will rule justly, and Jerusalem will become the city of the great king. Okay, so there will be a political element as well. A liturgical element as well. He's going to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And he who will build the temple of the Lord and will bear the honor and sit on the rule of the throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Okay, so sort of a, sort of a, what seems perhaps a little bit of a uh, poetic or even clumsy way of, of saying that there's going to be one king who is going to oversee the political aspects and the religious aspects. Okay, this is the one occasion here where we're not going to have the separation of church and state, Jesus is going to be in charge of both of them, and they're both going to be carried out perfectly. There's going to be harmony between the offices. Full nine chapters of Ezekiel are given over to extreme detail about the new temple and its operations in the millennium. Isaiah 56, in that day my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. Remember in Matthew 21, when Jesus goes in there and uh, and uh, he finds that there's a marketplace set up. I mean, it's, if, if you've ever been there, it's, it's an enormous platform, about 40 acres, of, uh, and it's the court of the Gentiles. And, uh, and because nobody was there, they set up a market, ideal place for a market. People needed animals. People needed money changed. And so, so that's what was going on in this. And what does Jesus say? You know, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, Okay. This, this, this 40 acre platform is designed here to be filled with people praying. Okay? Not a market. Now, there's nothing wrong with markets, but not here. Because it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and that's the way it's going to be. Okay? Nations will stream to her light to employ her priestly, uh, priestly services here, and, and, and the nations will. will will just crowd into the court of the Gentiles so that they can worship the true and living God. Okay? And it has, of course, a spiritual aspect. But don't, don't, don't force everything into the spiritual. Okay? Uh, it's spiritual. You know, unless you're born again, you won't get there. Okay? You won't be part of the kingdom if you're not born again. 
And it's not until the people are given purified lips that they call upon the name of the Lord, serve Him from shoulder to shoulder. Okay, so there is a spiritual aspect, and I don't want to minimize that. In fact, it's going to be abundant. Just everybody who gets who starts out in the kingdom is going to be a believer. So uh, the, the 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 spiritual robustness and uh, is is going to be tremendous. Okay, but don't limit the kingdom just that. Okay, this is what we're praying for when we say, "Your kingdom come." Right? Thy, will, your, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're praying for. Okay? And that is not what we see in amillennialism or postmillennialism, but it is the grand anticipation and expectation of the premillennialists. Okay? So, uh, got still, still got a couple of questions yet to cover before we uh, finish this section here, uh, but uh, we're, we've exhausted our time, so we'll have to pick that up. Next time. Any, any last-minute questions here before we uh, wrap things up tonight? What was that movie you were talking about earlier in the lesson? Movie. I believe it was a movie you were talking about where the kingdoms of the earth have now become... Oh, I'm talking about Handel's Messiah, the, uh, the, uh, the oratorio. The musical. Musical. Oh, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. No musicals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not a musical, but it's a it's an oratory it's a you know it's a 17th century oratorio that would have been performed in the church. The Hallelujah chorus, you know the Hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, ah, that's part of it. Okay, yeah. So it's not a movie. It's an oratorio. You have to you have to go to you have to go to the DSO to hear this one, <laughs> not the movie theater. <laughs> Okey doke. Well, we'll see you in uh, three weeks, uh, but there will be class next week.